Well, good morning. Did you know that you can tell a lot about an elephant by looking at its tusks? Uh, You can assess its ethnicity. You can assess its uh, gender. Both male and female African elephants have tusks, but only Asian male elephants have tusks. So no tusk probably means an Asian female elephant. Aren't you glad you came to church today, right? Uh, Also, uh, elephant tusks never stop growing through their life. Now I find that intriguing. You know, it's something so visible, so beautiful, uh, has, can offer just incredible insight into an animal's life. But of course, that only scratches the surface of who that animal is. And, and like elephant tusks, I think our understanding of who we are is something that should continue to grow in our, through our entire lives. Uh, our identity, that, that I that we experience ourselves to be, is so much deeper than the visible aspects of our life. Uh, let me just put it crassly. You are more than your body parts, your sexual desires, or your ethnic distinctives. You, those are crucial markers in your lives, but they're not your core identity. Oh boy. I feel like I've stumbled again on the elephant in the room. Last week we began talking about this idea of sexuality and spirituality and uh, the crossing of that, especially in our culture around us, we called the series The Elephant in the Room. And last week we talked about, you know, the power of uh, sex in our culture and uh, some biblical ideals for the foundation of love. And today I want to delve into our core identity as followers of Jesus and how sexuality, how relationships uh, either cloud or clarify who we really are. Uh, Let me begin with... An identity that's reflected by love. This is the ideal. Now, thinking about identity for a second, when you introduce yourself to someone, what is it that you say? How do you describe yourself? Or if you get on an online profile, you know, and you have to describe yourself, what kinds of words, what kind of language do you use when you meet somebody? How do you do that? You know, usually when I meet somebody for the first time, I tell them, hey, I'm Brooks, you know, it's a name given to me by my parents and... Tell them, I may, I may say, I'm a husband to Jody. I've got three sons. I may tell them, hey, I, um, I'm the oldest son of Les and Tanya Wilson. I, I've got a younger sister named Melissa. If, if I'm not in this part of the world, I may say, hey, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Illinois. I'm from Southern Illinois. We're fixing to is one word and fried catfish is the other white meat. And what I'm communicating, of course, is that relationships reflect who I am. My relationship to my wife and my kids and my family, my friends from this part of the country, it reflects me. Those things aren't my deepest identity, but they reflect my identity, and a healthy relationship will do that. And as we've started last week looking a little bit at the book of Song of Songs, you see how a love relationship can reflect identity. Now, in this interesting book in the Old Testament, uh, a man and a woman are in love. Traditionally, King Solomon and a bride as they walk through the different facets of their relationship together. But what I want you to notice, even as we look at some of this today, is how uh, sexuality, how relationship doesn't replace who people are, but it reflects, it can reflect in healthy relationships who we are. So let's pick up the song, Song of Songs, uh, chapter 1, which is on page 547 in those Bibles in front of you, if you want to look there. We pick it up now with uh, the man speaking to this woman in this relationship. And he says, I liken you, my darling, 
to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Now, that's a dangerous thing, fellows, to say to a woman. You, my love, are a horse. Not exactly the identity statement we were looking for, but a little context helps, I hope. Among the chariots of Pharaoh, you see the the mare was always in the lead position, the most beautiful animal on the team. He is saying to her, in essence, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. Your cheeks, verse 10, are beautiful with earrings. Your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Now, the jewelry is not merely a gift designed to impress. It's a gift designed to show deep respect for her. So in this relationship, this man and this woman, he is showering her with kindness and with respect. How much impact will that have on her self-identity? And then she speaks, verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a statue of myrrh resting between my breasts. Again, in the ancient world, uh, women uh, would wear a pouch of myrrh. It was typically the most valuable possession that they owned. It would give off a fragrance. She says her relationship with this man is this most valuable thing in her life. She uh, says he lays on her heart at night. Verse 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. En Gedi was an ancient oasis in the desert. You know, miles and miles of hot desert sand is interrupted by this beautiful, lush, green area, palm trees and all the rest. This man is a refreshing sight, a life giver to her. Through this relationship, there's encouragement. They are both better because of the other. And then look at chapter 2, verse 1. She says, I'm a rose of Sharon. A lily of the valleys. He says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Her image, self-image, has gone up because of this relationship with this man. At first, she said not to look at her in chapter 1 because she had dark, suntanned skin in the days. That meant lower class, field worker, outside, you know. But now she says she's a rose, a lily reflected in this relationship. And then verse 3, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. He is the apple tree that provides uh, nourishment, that provides protection for her. She feels completely safe with him. And in this safety with each other, they can be their true selves. They can love each other for who they really are. It allows their identity to shine through. It doesn't create their identity, but it reflects it. And the perfect mirror for this, she says, is this banner of love. Now, again, in the ancient world, a banner was a kind of a colorful, large uh, billboard type of thing that was used in public gatherings. It was used to identify people in military conquests. A general would have a banner. Everybody would know where the general was on the field. The troops would rush to him because they belonged to him. In the scriptures, God has even used that imagery. Yahweh Nisi, God is my banner. We belong to him. So think about that. In this relationship, she's saying that this man's relationship, this banner over over her, is not control, it's not manipulation, it's not condemnation. The banner over her is not physical. He doesn't have his hands all over her. The banner over her, his banner over her, is love. Ahava. It is this beautiful picture of self-giving, respectful sacrificial love. He respects her for who she is. Now that's an ideal description 
of someone's identity being reflected in relationship. Without that kind of sacrificial love, without that safety, without that respect, without uh, that protection, you don't get to see the depths of someone's identity. You merely see what's on the outside. Like an elephant's tusks. Did you know that... Elephants use their tusks to defend themselves, to fight off predators. Well, of course you did. We just saw it on a very serious video just a few moments ago. It's interesting to me that this outward visible marker of their lives, these tusks, are used to push others away, even aggressively. It makes me wonder, in our own lives, are there people, perhaps that you know, that will use outward markers in their life, like like gender or sexual attraction or the way they dress as a way to push you away or avoid expressing and exposing their deepest identity, who they are, their hurts, their hopes. Could safety and love free people in your life to clarify more about themselves? I think... It's possible that what Springfield needs from us is a banner of love. One way to describe ourselves is how we're connected to other people. The song shows that. Another way is to consider our identity as shaped in a broken world. If the song describes this ideal relationship, then let's get real for a moment. How do you describe yourself? Well, First time I introduce myself, I may say my name and my relationships with people. That's one way. Another way I will often identify myself is by describing what I do. I'm Brooks. I'm a pastor at a church, which usually ends the conversation um, for a lot of folks. Or I'll tell people what I what I love. You know, uh, man, I love um, college basketball. I love the St. Louis Cardinals most weekends. Um, not this weekend, maybe, but most times. I love Dunkin' Donuts, you know. I, I, those, again, aren't my deepest identity, but they sort of reflect who I am. And I wonder in a world, a, a broken world, where love relationships are in short supply, where we sometimes use what we love or who we love is used to describe ourselves, there's a whole new category of identity statements that have cropped up. And you have probably heard many, if not all, of the initials, LGBTQIA+, seems to be one that is used often. You may or may not know what that is. L stands for lesbian, that is those with female same-sex attraction, gay, often used for male same-sex attraction, B, bisexual, often for attraction to both genders, T is for transgender people who, uh, whose gender expression differs from their biological sex at birth. Q is for questioning, sometimes uh, used that way to describe those who aren't 100% sure where they are in their sexual attractions and or gender. I for intersex, someone born with biological sex characteristics that are different than traditional male and female bodies. A, for asexual, someone who experiences little or no sexual desire. And then plus, to kind of catch every other category of sexual and gender expression that doesn't have a letter or a name just yet. And in this kind of world we live in, I'm afraid that identity has been reshaped into who you love. And that's the deepest part of who you are. This, this view of identity is, I think, the issue of our day. 
Now, you can ignore that. You can close your eyes. You can put your head in the sand. Or you can yell at it. You can lambast it. You can throw rocks at it. But you, can't, you just can't get away from it. This is an elephant in the room. This is an issue we need to talk about. But, to be honest, for me, this is not an issue. This is Sarah, part of my extended family. She's, Sarah's not a real name, of course, but she's a real person. Man, she is funny. She is successful. She is smart. She is compassionate. I think she puts up with the fact that I'm a pastor because I'm family, but she'd probably tell you the church hasn't done her any favors. And I'm afraid in her life that she feels like she had to early on choose between Jesus and her sexuality, and she chose her sexuality. Now, see, this isn't an issue for me. This is, this is my friend Larry, a guy who's in the church who has felt attraction uh, to men his entire life, who has had one foot in uh, the gay world that is often anti-Christian and has had one foot in the church world that is often anti-gay and he vacillates between the two and he's never felt comfortable at home in either one. This is for all those people that I've had conversations with in our community, in church, in our neighborhood, my own personal neighborhood people who have all around me are trying to figure out what is this, this thing called sexual desire and how does that square with the call of Jesus and how does this work together? This isn't about politics for me. This is about people. You know, people I care about, people I love. And so in our quest to hold God's vision for marriage and sexuality, please, let's never lose our grip on God's heart. He loves you, regardless of sexual decisions that you have made in your life. He wants you to flourish in life, and so do I. And so while these initials have come and have become a part of identity statements, while those might be new, what they reflect is actually something very, very ancient. For millennia, the people of God have struggled with identities in kind of this broken uh, world that we live in. For instance, as early as Genesis 19, the first book of the Scriptures, we have this uh, city called Sodom, and uh, there's a homosexuality that's uh, prevalent there. It's a brutalizing, forced homosexuality. Genesis 19 tells us about it. It says, before they had gone to bed, this is Lot now, he has accepted a, a, a visitor, a male visitor into his home. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And God brought judgment to that city, it says, because of the outcry to the Lord against his people. Sex, in that instance, falsely objectified another human into an object to use. Broken sex objectifies people into objects to use. But that is not who you are. In the law, God gave his people In Leviticus 18, it says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Now, the law of God in Leviticus was not just a set of arbitrary rules. It's a shaping tool for the people of God, these slaves coming out of Egypt, to live abundantly, to reflect again the God and His image throughout the world. And in their world, other religions would glorify same-sex actions as worship to other deities, particularly to Baal and other gods. So God tells His people not to participate in the moral and religious practices of the nations around them. That was toyeva. That was detestable. But before you weaponize that word against people with same-sex attractions, listen to Proverbs 6 as well. 
There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable, that are toyeva. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Wow, listen to that list. Pride and lying and lust and cheating and gossip. Those are detestable. That broadens the blame pretty wide, doesn't it? So broken sex, like all sin, is that which has no boundaries. But that is not who you are. In the church of Jesus, Paul writes these words in Romans 1 about humanity apart from God. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. And so he goes on to say, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men who abandoned natural relations with women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. Sex for them, you see, had become an idol. Focusing on created things rather than the Creator. Because we humans exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's the core issue, the root problem. He says, people exchanged God-created sexual relationships for unnatural ones, Paul's words. So broken sex prioritizes itself over God, over His Word, over His boundaries. But that's not who you are. You see, the Bible consistently teaches that, that God's vision for the most abundant life relegates sexual activity to be shared exclusively within a monotonous monotonous marriage. Maybe that too. That's maybe part of the problem. A monogamous marriage between a male and a female. And Jesus rooted every question in in his uh, relationship or any question about marriage in that vision of God. The church throughout the centuries has had an almost uh, unanimous view to continue that vision. So every sexual expression outside of that life is less than abundant life. Sex outside of a marriage commitment, an adulterous affair, homosexual sex, living in a hookup culture, it misses the mark. Which is what the writers of the New Testament, they use this term in Greek, hamartia. We often translate that as sin in the New Testament. But today, as you know, that is not popular. It's even repressive, people say, right? A growing attitude, I think, among both gay and even straight people is that you have to follow your sexual desires in order to be free. That's the story that's being told. So we want sex without boundaries. Get your laws off my body. We want uh, sex defined by us and not by God. Who cares if we objectify people for pleasure? It's only sex. No one really gets hurt. Really? Tell me the person who has not been hurt by broken sexual experiences. Don't ask the daughter, the daughter that I know whose father left the family because he determined that he was gay. Don't ask her. Don't ask the the New York pastor who was trying to lead a church when his elderly father, who's also a pastor, transitioned into a woman. Don't ask him about pain. Don't ask the girl in college who came out of the closet then only to change her mind a year later, but she couldn't really talk about it because what what would she say? She was wrong? Don't ask her about the pain. 
You see, sex reshaped by our cultural moment as our true identity causes no shortage of pain all around us. Did you know that about a third of an elephant's tusk is embedded in their head? Kind of hidden from view. The, uh, the hidden part is known as pulp, which renders uh, the tusk you know, anchored in the skull. It provides its strength. It nourishes it through uh, tissues and blood vessels and other things. I, I wonder, as I think about that image, how much of current sexual expression is hidden in our world's kind of narrative and, and, and nourished even by the lies that we like to tell ourselves, lies about freedom. Do what you want and you'll be free. Really? Or lies about consequence. It doesn't really hurt anybody. Really? Are there some identity initials that have clouded who you really are? See, you can describe yourself by how you're connected to others or by who or what you love, but these are just kind of markers. They're not exactly who we are, not at the deepest level. So let me consider this, an identity redeemed by Christ. When you introduce yourselves, what do you say? You know, something I almost never say in conversation. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's the kind of cultural baggage with it, or maybe it's the uh, awkwardness that can come with it. But something I r- rarely introduce myself to people with, but probably speaks most to the who I am, to the identity that I feel about myself most, is this simple phrase I am a child of God. I'm a follower of King Jesus. More than who I am in relationship with, as critical as that is, more than who and what I love, as foundational as those things are, my identity is rooted in Jesus. You see, my deepest identity, your deepest identity, is not rooted in sexual attraction or gender or relationship status or ethnicity or citizenship or demographics or political party. That's second and third tier markers. It doesn't mean they're unimportant. It just means your primary identity church is in Jesus. Just listen. John chapter 1, he writes, Yet to all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Or Galatians 3, verse 26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Or 1 John 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That is our deepest identity identity, children of God, that is who you are. Saying, I'm gay, tells me who you're attracted to, not who you are. Saying, I'm transgender, tells me how you feel about yourself. It doesn't tell me who you are. Saying, I'm single, I am widowed, I am divorced, tells me about who you're in relationship with, not about who you are. You are so much more than the relationship you're in right now. You are more than your attractions that you have right now, than the things you are questioning and wrestling with right now. You are a child of God. You reflect something of His image into the world. You are loved by your Creator, purchased by the blood of our Savior. Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That is where we must start. That is who you are. 
Did you know that inside elephant tusks, there have a unique pattern of kind of some crossed hatched lines in there. They're called Schrager lines. And their presence indicates whether or not you have an authentic elephant tusk or whether this is a, you know, a fake that's been made out of plastic or resin or something else. The lines in the tusk demonstrate a genuine elephant. And you, church, you have some lines that define you at your deepest core. They look something more like this, of course. And so for you who have that cross etched into your soul, let me just offer some challenges for us as we think about navigating in this world that we live in. One, I hope that you will be a safe, protective, and sacrificial friend. That when someone comes to you with with sexual confusion or with questions or with addictions or with mistakes, I hope you will honor their struggle. I hope you will encourage and entertain their questions. I hope you will pray for their search. I hope you will weep with those who weep. I hope you will build up their true identity in Christ instead of tearing down their lesser identities. Make your banner over people. Be love. Not control or manipulation or condemnation. Love. But two, I hope that you will refuse to participate in any sexual activity that is dehumanizing. That you would avoid any action that treats another person as less than a child of God. That you would avoid any word or joke or touch or sexual expression that makes someone an object or an idol instead of a God's son or God's daughter. Remember that the the golden rule of Jesus applies even to sexuality so that in everything do to others as you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets anything less than that is broken and of course finally I hope that you will remember who you are our father has called us his children and he has created safe boundaries for this thing called sexuality we all have boundaries around this as a straight, married male, there are boundaries around my sexuality. Anything outside the bounds of my covenant with my wife is outside the bounds. Lust of other women, whether digital or physical, is outside the bounds. Adultery is outside the bounds. My identity in Jesus uh, compels me to say no to certain sexual expressions, even if my flesh cries out for those things. For those of you who are single, full sexual expression should be reserved for committed marriage relationships. Your identity in Jesus compels you to say no to certain things. For those who live with same-sex attraction, your identity in Christ may compel you to pursue celibacy. That's a boundary. Maybe instead you pursue what Wesley Hill calls spiritual friendships where church uh, becomes a community of nurturing and encouragement for you through this season of your life. For those working through gender confusion, your identity in Christ may compel you to wait on sexual expression of any kind. Take the time to get to know who you are in Jesus Christ before you allow a label or a lifestyle to define you. See, our identity in Jesus compels us to say no to sexual, some sexual expressions. That's true for all of us. We all live with unfulfilled desires while we wait for what Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. That's the hope of the gospel, resurrection, where one day there's coming a time when all the chaos of the fall will be defeated and undone. You will live forever in a remade body that is free from the desires outside of God's vision for your flourishing. And whatever the struggle is now, It will be worth it then. Well, 
for me, the most heartbreaking thing about elephant tusks, I think, is that they're often brutally torn off and sold for incredible value. Elephants die in the process. A pound of ivory can fetch somewhere around $1,500 on the black market, and uh, two tusks can weigh as much as 250 pounds. That's about $375,000. And so people poach elephants in order to sell their tusks. That's heart-wrenching for me. What a waste of a beautiful and powerful creature. I mean, can you imagine decimating something our Father created and loves deeply for a piece of its body? No, you can't. I know you can't. Because that's not who you are. You, you're children of God. Father, I pray for your help. I pray for your grace. I pray for your sensitivity. I pray for your direction for our church family, for who we are in Jesus. We're so thankful that we don't have to search for who we are, Father, but we know because of the blood of your Son. We know whose we are. And now guide us, we pray, in this world we live in to be people of the light and people of your truth and people whose banner over others is love. We pray for this grace now in Jesus' name. Amen.